here we go with part two. If you were interested in what we were dealing with and looking at in an integral psychological manner, you're going to love part two because it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. So we've been talking a lot about trauma and being overrated or being becoming a victim, how to overcome victimhood, how to change the story. I have a, a friend and a colleague who's a psychologist in Ukraine, and she was working on trauma victims before the war started. And obviously, there's massive trauma that's going over there. You, your town, your family, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of your people killed. But she says what's really exciting or hopeful is she's finding that it is less severe than she would have thought because there's so much societal support and meaning and purpose put into that. And that has done a lot to ameliorate the severity of the trauma because we're intricalists, you know, we bring it all in. So I'm wondering if that and the existential questions, you know, what is my purpose? What is my meaning? You know, this stuff has made me who I am. Therefore, you know, I'm finding my path in my life. And Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, was one of the first things that got me interested in, in psychology. And I'm wondering how that plays into the work that you've been doing. And I think there's a there's a huge deficit in our culture. We're talking about America right now, of purpose and meaning among young people, besides just having a good time and making it to the top of the heap and having a lot of followers. And I, and I'm, I know I'm being superficial, but I think it's, it's it's a huge problem. Yeah. So there's in the literature and in let's say clinical wisdom, there's this idea that if you if you were involved in a trauma where you actually could take some measure of control and try to do something, that you're less likely to develop PTSD adult or teen PTSD. And I have no reason to question that. So I'm not saying the Ukrainian people will not have a huge problem with PTSD. Sure. But to the extent that they feel that they're fighting for their own homeland, you know, against an aggressive power, and this is a, this is a history defining war for them, that sense of purpose can and will buffer them against some of the impacts of PTSD. And, you know, we earlier talked about the Vietnam War. Part of what that made that so traumatogenic is a lot of people didn't have any idea why we were there and what in God's name they were doing fighting there either because, you know, uh, on some level, what had Vietnam done to us? Not not much, or not anything really on a global scale that I know of. So yes, having a purpose, having a meaning, being able to do something. Now, this is the, one of those areas where 
adult trauma and childhood trauma are somewhat different because in childhood trauma, you don't have a purpose. It's just happening to you. You can try to fight against it, but whatever you're going to try is going to probably fall short. Now, that said, what I encourage for those persons who suffer early childhood trauma is that very often the early trauma leaves you with some outsized qualities that you had to develop in order to survive. I call them the gifts of the trauma. So a gift of morality, a gift of creativity, a gift of depth, a gift of healing. And that in order to truly recover from the trauma, you'll have to find that gift and use it. And that's the place where the agency and the purpose can come back in. If not for the trauma, I wouldn't have this gift. If not for the gift, I wouldn't be able to help other people. And so that's what uh, an essential stage I see in recovery from childhood trauma. But you can see that it's very similar to something that someone from adult, the adult world might also experience that if they hadn't have been there at that moment to help, the situation would have gone so much more badly. And so again, that it's kind of a resiliency generating idea that you can give back, take part, perhaps reduce someone else's suffering in one way or another. So I think it's a very key concept across the board. Yeah. And I think the 12 steps is really, you know, work with that idea. You know, once you you have to give back and you have to help others who are struggling with it. And that does a great deal to strengthen people's recovery, their own recovery, when you're working with others. It just generates an energy and a purpose and a meaning. It's like, these people are looking to me and I've got to walk this walk if I'm going to be there for them because they need me like I needed people, you know. Yes. And of course, the final stage of the hero's journey is the return to your community with the blessings that you have won through your journey and trials. And I just want to, since we were talking about the power of labels before, I just want to give a label to what you were describing there, Mark, the possibility of post-traumatic growth that one can actually, that some people can not only heal, but as you're both pointing to the idea that some people can more than heal, they can grow stronger and more resilient as a result of their of the trauma they've been been through. And we've alluded to a theme earlier, which I want to go to now in some depth, and that is there's been an assumption that you know therapy works. There's a huge amount of data showing that psychotherapy is effective has significant benefits overall. But there's been, throughout the history of psychotherapy, this warfare between different schools, and warfare is too strong a term, but we can use it, with the, the first the psychoanalysts having the comprehensive explanation, and this is this explains everything, and then the behaviorists coming along with a totally different framework and understanding of what's effective in therapy and what isn't, and then a third wave, the humanistic psychologists coming in. And, you know, now we have various competing 
schools for the fourth force, uh, transpersonal, integral, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the main idea underlying this conflict has been that particular perspectives, approaches, and understandings of the nature of psychological suffering, its causes, and therefore its remedies are quite distinctive according to the different schools. And so there's been great argument that this, you know, my school is better, more effective, more more therapeutic, etc. And yet the research hasn't really held held up that much. Much more important has turned out to be what's called common factors, so the particularly the quality of the relationship. And and more recently, there's been the recognition that wait a minute, it turns out that some individuals are much more effective than under other individual therapists. So now we're we're finding very strong research suggesting major differences in outcomes between different psychotherapists, not depending on so much on what school they're from, but rather than their own personal characteristics, interpersonal sensitivities and personal skills. And it's sometimes referred to as the super shrinks and the pseudo shrinks. Mark, I'd love to hear you talk about this because it feels feels really important if we're to optimize therapeutic impact. Sure. Let me throw up a a small defense for the technical aspects of psychotherapy before we dispense with that into the common factors. So when I was originally researching this problem in my dissertation, came across something that not a lot of people talk about but it's called the matrix problem. And the matrix problem is how would you test two psychotherapies against one another with actually matched participants? And the issue is, is that there are so many categories that are clinically relevant that it is almost impossible to design outcome research. I mean, the research you've seen on outcome research is white males in one group versus white males in another group, matched maybe on a couple of variables. You're talking about, are you talking about patients or, or, or therapists? Patients, yes, yes, patients. And then you get an outcome measure. So it's very, very hard to do this kind of study. And we do know that people who do subscribe to different theoretical schools actually live that out in the session. So there's been confirmatory research that your psychodynamic therapist looks like a psychodynamic therapist. And there's been some studies that suggest psychodynamic therapy is actually a little better for certain problems, particularly when they're intractable and kind of have a lot of family involvement. So there's, I I would not want to shut that whole Mm -hmm. part of research down. If we don't have physics nailed down, then we don't have this completely nailed down either. However, what you also said is true. Common factors the therapeutic relationship, the fit between the therapist's idea of therapy and the client's idea of therapy. These are the things that seem to make the biggest difference in outcomes. So 
a line of research was started probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Some names are Lambert, Scott Miller. There are a couple other folks. And what they started to do is just research psychotherapy outcomes the best they could in a clinic. And what they found is that there was a certain group of therapists who would get results as much as 10 times faster than their compatriots, let's say. And they dub these the super shrinks. Now, I don't like the word pseudo shrinks. I think that's a little pejorative. It's not clear that all those other people were just failing terribly, but they were not getting the results of these super shrinks. And I'm more comfortable with that word. And so what is the essence of a super shrink in therapy? Well, what it really seems to boil down to, and here I'm channeling Scott Miller in particular, who I listened up on before our talk to get refreshed, is that these super shrinks make a lot of room for negative feedback. And they do a type of checking in with the client that encourages the client to say, you know, I'd rather be talking about issue X. Or what would really be helpful is focusing on topic Y, because I think we've been, you know, either wasting our time or not using the time well. Or the feedback might be, you know, I feel like you're not giving me enough direct feedback. I personally, Mark Foreman, get that complaint all the time from clients of other therapists. I'll ask them, what did you like about therapy? What did you dislike about your former therapist? And they'll say, the person just listened to me. They didn't give me enough feedback. So that tells me, okay, the client's idea of therapy includes feedback, so I should give feedback. But the super shrinks create this environment where that can happen. And because they do that, and because they're willing to be wrong and to readjust and to listen, they retain clients longer, which is the biggest risk factor for poor outcomes and lack of improvement is early dropout. Now, what has developed out of this research is a group, and there is my understanding, is a group of measures, paper and pencil, that you can give clients to seek out this information. I personally don't do it that way. I pers- it's, it's any piece of paperwork can be very cumbersome depending on how you practice. But what I almost always do is say, how was today's session? Was it helpful? Did we talk about the things you wanted to talk about? Is there something we missed that we should talk about now or that we should talk about at the beginning of next time? And my experience is that that done consistently will typically draw out the client and give permission for them to state that thing. And hence, 
I retain clients better and their prognosis is somewhat better when that's done. Now, can you match every client and give them what they want? Probably not. There's a humanity to the profession that some people, it's not that they can't be helped. It's that you're not the right person to help them. You can't give them what it is that they need, or you make a mistake that has nothing to do with a conscious intention, but you forget something about their past that they value and they see it as a breach of trust. And then they email you and say, I can't believe you missed that. (laughs) You know, I'm firing you as my therapist. Things happen. I often reflect on Jung. They asked him how successful he was. He said, well, with about one third of the clients, I think I cured them. The second third, I think I helped, but didn't cure. And with a third of them, I didn't really do anything at all. (laughs) And I take that as a little bit of a, a lesson learned. But these measures are out there. They can be used. The super shrinks don't use these measures. They do it more in their question asking and checking in. So it can be done without measures, but they're there to be had. They're really good to look at for the questions they ask. And the field would do better to normalize this sort of kind of hyper checking in, like, did this work? If it didn't work, what didn't work for you, et cetera. Yeah, but that's what the literature says. And it says if you are seeking this feedback over and over again, you can improve your outcomes by getting this feedback. Or if you're giving the paper and pencil instrument, you will improve your outcomes through what they call deliberative practice, which means you're getting these outcomes and then you can keep working to get them, get your outcomes better. But yeah, that is the general gist of of my understanding of the super shrink. I'm not sure if you might have something to add. I know this is something you've read up on. Yeah, and I I think one one thing to add, and it's actually an amplification of something you were pointing to, is that there's significant research showing that therapists who begin using paper and pencil feedback tests, getting immediate feedback at the end of a session. How did this session work for you? Did we talk about what you wanted to talk about? The kinds of questions you asked. And who get a brief test, but objective measures of how well you're doing, they just have much better outcomes as soon as they start using these tests. And one of the, if we look across disciplines, uh, as you mentioned, deliberative, deliberate practice. Well, you know, one of there's a whole field now of, of excellence or expertise, and one of the key things is: does how much immediate feedback does a person get from either a coach or some objective measurement, and do they respond to that feedback? And if you look at different different disciplines, there's been this dramatic improvement in most disciplines in their outcome, whether it's athletics or chess or or music, etc. One exception, by and large, has been psychotherapy. Psychotherapists haven't improved that much. 
And the reason is clear, you know, we do our work in isolation. We don't get much feedback. We don't get measured. We don't don't have objective scores. And most therapists, it turns out, are not good at estimating how well the therapy is going. There was one, stu- one study, I think, of something like 260 therapists. Of, they're asked to rate their therapeutic effectiveness. And, and the average rating was at 80%, and no one rated themselves below average. So if you're good at math, you can figure out that you know, we were a little biased in our self-estimates of therapeutic effectiveness. So I've just been very impressed by the by the effectiveness of bringing in those measures. And as you point out, some people incorporate them automatically, these questions and issues automatically. So, so, but the for most of us, it can be very helpful to get this kind of feedback. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I was researching it, coming back to it, I think now what it looks like has happened is they've put some of the measures. So my practice is almost entirely online. So paperwork becomes more difficult because it's got to be done, printed, scanned. But it looks like some of these things are like everything else are going online. So I looked back into, okay, what would it take to get that implemented so that the measures could be done online and I could get some feedback that way without inconveniencing the client who just has to click through, let's say, an online form. So I think that might help with implementation just because there's so much to take. If you're seeing 20 plus clients a week, I mean, it sounds small, but every piece of paperwork you got to do is an extra thing for everybody. But yeah, I think the internet may, (laughs) the internet giveth and the internet taketh away. uh, And it may giveth in this this thing. But I do think it's important research. I do think those questions are key. I can't imagine practicing without them, even if just to get a baseline of how I'm doing. You know, and what I see is if clients routinely tell me that something is helpful, they stay in therapy and they make progress. It's in that early period where things are most vulnerable, where you're trying to get a bead on what's helpful for the client, and you could lose them if you don't make an immediate impact. And I actually tell my clients, if you don't feel better after one session, if you don't feel something, then we're probably not working well together and we need to talk about it. That's my belief that you, not that you're going to change overnight, but that you're going to feel like that was worthwhile and should happen right away. And Mark, do you, you know, all these years, you have a vast knowledge, you've written books, you've studied, obviously, you you know, your craft and many years of working with people on the subjective side of the street. Is there a zone that you get into that, you know, okay, I'm in my therapist role here and I seem to have more access to intuitive understanding and and empathy and something that you wouldn't necessarily have over the dinner table with your kids. It's like you're in that zone. And, you know, they talk about healing personalities, like some therapists just have that. And have you experienced that? And you think it's an important part of it? Well, I think, you know, what I would say is the therapeutic zone 
is really a fluid movement between multiple zones, let's say. One of those is a kind of intellectual curiosity. It's a conceptual zone. Huh, I wonder what this client is experiencing. Maybe these two things are connected. That kind of, you know, psychologizing, let's call it. Then there's a kind of more receptive listening where you're just sort of taking it in. And certain clients just come in and just start going. And you're going to listen for 45 minutes before you're going to get any word in unless you really need to interrupt. And I'll just let clients go if that's what they want for the session. And if they have the horsepower to make it through that time, good for them. Then, you know, occasionally I'll try to drop into like something like the witness or something like pure awareness or something like that because it feels that the moment pulls for it. I don't know what effect that has on the client in any case. I know what effect it has on me. But therapy in it is happening in the client in the therapist's head in at least those three different ways. And I guess you could say the intuitive creative bursts are less of a zone and more of a result of kind of staying in one of those three zones and being fluid. And then occasionally when the moment presents, you get a upwelling of, I don't want this to sound too grandiose, but inspired talking. It's like, oh, this is really, this is an important moment, you know, so on and so forth. I was listening to a client yesterday and his wife is divorcing him in in the most slow and painful way. And he's still holding on a year and a half later, sort of hoping that she's going to, and he'll go into this mood of like, oh, well, what would we even do if we were by ourselves? What a stupid idea, waste of time. And I taught it for the first time and I stopped him and I said, that thought habit that you do is not helping because what you're doing is you're shutting down actual thought processes about the future by minimizing and dismissing them. Now, you might come to the conclusion that you're still better off together after really thinking about it, but you've got this short circuit habit to poo-poo and dismiss it, and then you're stuck in this. There can only be one answer, and that's we're still together, despite her relatively cold feedback, which is consistent to you. But that little moment of like, oh, I caught something here that I'd seen many times before, but now seemed like that. That's a moment that's a result, let's say, of this other types of listening, conceptual, mindful, spacious. Mark, you're talking now about some of the skills that uh, you've developed and, and or 
therapists in general can develop to to be more effective. And we've also talked about the research on what makes some therapists more effective. But, but there's one dimension that hasn't been looked at and we haven't talked about yet and hasn't been researched in psychotherapy outcome. And that is the, the developmental stage of the therapist. Yes. And what we know from the research is that one psychological developmental stage pre-conventional, post-conventional, conventional, just to keep it very simple for a moment, has an enormous impact on a lot of aspects of one's life. And one would expect that the psychotherapist's developmental stage would have an enormous impact on the capacity for empathy, for understanding, for skillful responses. Yet we don't have any, any data. And one would also expect perhaps maybe a little more complexly, that the match between the levels of therapist and client would have a big impact. But but again, we don't have data, but hopefully you have some thoughts about it. Well, there is some data, some research has been done. However, the range of what we would call development is very minimal. So very few people, let's say, above orange, modern, rational, most of the other people in it, let's say the clients are at amber orange or the third order. We get into all the naming problems. But there is some research looking into these questions, but it's not very expansive. And so it doesn't tell us a whole lot. So there's more speculation then there is knowledge. What I, you know, sometimes, or in my book, I analogize the word stage to its other meaning, which is the actual stage someone performs on. And you can be there playing guitar in the corner of a coffee shop, and that's your stage. That's the limit to the underlying complexity of what you're saying. But if we move you to a small theater, now there's a whole lot more complexity that can happen in the background. And you could be singing the same song, but now maybe you have a light on you and you have an amplification system and something else. Now we move you to a really big theater. Maybe you have a dancers and, you know, a multi, multi sort of facet light show and a smoke show and all of that. And that is what people are a bit like as they move up in development. There's more complexity that can be enacted, and it typically is, even if some of the words that they're saying are the same thing. So depression at an early level is not the same in its inner nature as depression at a later level. There's a lot more going on at that later stage. Now, I am in a really privileged position in this regard because I work with clients who are using their insurance as well as I work with clients who are private pay and who are very developmentally driven. They meditate, they circle, they do psychedelics, so on and so forth. So I I would guess that I have a developmental, and I was a child psychologist for a while, 
a developmental range, which is about as large as you can do in psychotherapy. So I've been able to actually see this one in real time. Now, the problem is less what happens when you have a client from an earlier stage than yourself. Assuming you have what I call a kind of emotional memory or developmental memory for what that was like for you to be a teenager, young adult, you know, middle-aged adult, whatever stages you feel that you've moved past. If you can remember what that's like, you can be a terrific therapist for that person earlier in development. Where it probably gets very tricky is if you have a client who is developmentally past you moving through lessons that you have not absorbed and what you do is project down you sort of flatten them their verticality as we might say in vertical development we would flatten them and we wouldn't meet their need for a certain level of complexity or later on we wouldn't meet the need for a level of transcendence, which becomes intrinsic to the personality later, much later in development. So you're going to miss that spiritual issue, or you're going to miss that multi-perspectival complexity. And the only solution for that is you've got to work on your own development, like nobody's business, so that when those clients appear, you have something intelligent to say <laughs> about, you know, I had a client who went on an ayahuasca journey, and maybe this will prime us for our next conversation. And he had this vision of being a fetus and simply hating that he was in his existence, hating existence and himself at the same time. Why was he here? This is horrible. So what does a therapist say to that? Well, <laughs> luckily enough, I had one line from Niskaradatta, who's a very well-known spiritual teacher, that I had called from some satsang, you know, many years ago, where he said, Say what you want about the ego, but whatever it is, it hates itself. And so I, in a moment of inspiration, offered this up and the client loved it because it captured the moment in a way and put a bit of a name on it, like this small self, the fetus, the, the smallest identification does not like itself. And I have found that to be true in my practice. But it's like, because I've been driven for development, hopefully I can then show up for other people who are similarly driven. And I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that drive. I, I'd have to, I'd have to really contort this guy's perspective. Now he could have told me vis-a-vis -vis the super shrink literature 
That's a terrible interpretation. I don't think that's what it means at all. To which I would have said, good. I'm sorry I got it wrong, but please tell me what it tell me what it means to you that I got it wrong. So I see part of my job, even with people in later in development, is to be incorrect. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Mark. <laughs> to be incorrect. I, I part of the job description. I, I've never heard that before. I think it's oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I'm going to be wrong so that you can tell me what's better. Beautiful. And I and I would have been just as happy as if he said it, but he kind of confirmed it in the moment and he, I have reason to believe, you know, he's he's an older, mature man experienced in spiritual matters, so I don't think he was just just patting my back. He sent me an email, said that was really helpful. He wanted to know the teacher's name. And so it was a little confirmation. But yeah, just offering something that a client can push off of and say, no, it's not quite like that. It's like this. And hence, we haven't talked about it, but reflective listening is, for my mind, the beating heart of all therapy is to be able to say, what I'm hearing you say is sounds like this. It sounds like what this spiritual teacher said. Does that sound right to you? Or would you add more? Just a simple reflection with an invitation to add is, I mean, Carl Rogers will forever be in the pantheon if that that's not all he did. But if that was all he did, it was it's so great that. He will forever be a, a hero of mine. Oh, beautiful. And, and your patients feel met, seen, and heard. And that can be an incredibly healing experience that they may yes. not have experienced before. It's a big deal. It really is. Yep, it really is. And it works works on me when people do it to me, too. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. Mark, there's so much, so much here. Let's let's dive into a couple of some of the really controversial topics that uh, yep. are up in psychotherapy, and I got a couple. One of them you, you mentioned the the psychedelic infusion into the culture or reanimation of psychedelic movement and into psychotherapy. It's not yet legal for most of them, but it's partially so, and more's coming. How, what do you make of this? Well, so I I just caught up a little bit on the research and, you know, I think it would be unfair to say anything other than, wow, the research is incredibly impressive. So two lines of research in particular stand out, though I know that there are more such as like psychedelics for end of life treatment, which has had some very good results. But psilocybin for depression, they just confirmed that not only does it cause depression numbers to go way down, but it looks like the effect lasts as long as a year. So here you're talking about something that is much better than any of the psychopharmacological treatments that we have or at least the typical ones, let's say, that most people take. Now, they are doing multiple sessions of psilocybin 
with therapeutic support before and after. So it's not like just take some mushrooms and you're done. So there is real structure here, but they're showing effect sizes that are very impressive. And then similarly in with MDMA, which is not really a psychedelic in the same category of psilocybin, ayahuasca, peyote, etc., but it seems to be extremely effective for PTSD. People, a sizable portion of people no longer qualify for PTSD after doing multiple sessions of MDMA therapy. And this is in, it's finished, it's phase three trials. So that means the next step would be approval as far as I understand, by the FDA. You might know something more about that than me, but that's my understanding. So these things are on the cusp of legalization. There's already training programs to be done. Now, with all that said, I think there are a couple of things that are going to need, we're going to need to develop in our response. There's so much verve right now around psychedelics. It's kind of a mini cultural movement with people feeling that this could change the culture, never mind the mental health world. In other words, what happens when a mass of people start taking these mysticism-inducing substances and having these kinds of experiences? And that is a much bigger, broader, and for that reason, potentially more fraught ideal. And I I caught a quote by Roland Griffiths, who's one of the sort of neo-pioneers. You know, there was this whole movement, of course, that you knew about with Stan Groff and early LSD research that has largely been lost to us, but when it became illegal or when those substances became illegal. But Roland Griffiths did this study in 2006 showing that psilocybin could create these enduring, most meaningful experiences in a regular population of folks who just, you know, decided to volunteer to to do these therapeutically mediated sessions of psilocybin. So, and he said two things that he said. One was, this was never really the intention of the investigators, this cultural movement. This is something that's grown out of the research and with the verve, let's say, of the groups of people administering and using this stuff. And I have tons of people in my practice. I do not use psychedelics because I have a borderline diagnosis, borderline two, and a psychotic first degree relative. So I'm in the danger zone. And this is one of the things that in reading through the literature, there is a lot of people who feel that negative reports have been underreported or negative events. 
And I, I've seen, literally seen somebody go psychotic and not come back from using psychedelics. This happened to me at San Jose State in their counseling department. I was all full of transpersonal training. So I tried to derive all the meaning I could from his delusions. He thought he was gay. There was no proof he was gay. It was sort of a, a series of delusions. He got no better over weeks and weeks of exploratory therapy, all the compassion and empathy. Now, possibly I wasn't doing it right. There's always that. But he really ended up on antipsychotics. And I talked to the psychiatrist and I said he just didn't seem to come back. The psychiatrist looked at me kind of cynically and he said, it happens. And I just had another story come my way with my physician who was on an ayahuasca retreat. Somebody went psychotic, at least temporarily. So one of the things that people feel is going to happen here is that more people are going to be hurt than we are accounting for now. And that is going to be a problem. And there's some evidence that early on, these drugs may potentiate suicidal reactions in groups of people. And you can find it in the literature. It's small, but it's real. And it, even if they're allaying depression in more people, they are agitating people. So I found this quote by Roland Griffiths, which is very recent and is fairly cold water on this sort of big thing. It's in a book by a guy named Don Latin. Here's what Roland says. He says, although this is not about changing culture, it has implications for cultural change, but we were not trying to turn people into psychedelic proponents. I don't think any of the investigators wanted that. We are in a disconcerting psychedelic bubble right now in which people have unbridled enthusiasm for the potential of psychedelics to cure everything. They, may, they minimize the risks and make it sound like psychedelics are harmless. Psychedelics are not harmless. People are going to die. People are going to become psychotic. We are in a bubble, and that bubble is going to break. That's a powerful statement, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it because... As you describe the, let's see, the messianic fervor almost, it's not too, perhaps too strong a word. It feels so reminiscent of the 60s. Psychedelics were going to change the world. Let's put it in the drinking water. I mean, yeah, this was the extreme, insane and extreme, but but there was an element of that. There was a huge, huge enthusiasm and recognition of the enormous potential and beneficial potential and power, transformative, spiritual, etc., of these substances, but the nuance gets lost, and the and you know as I read that data, these substances can be very extremely safe when used with the right people under the right circumstances at the right time in clinical settings with ongoing therapy and supervision, but used other ways, they can be very problematic, and there are some people as you implied, who should never use them. And, and unfortunately, self-screening is not uh, not always very effective. So I'm glad you're 
the challenge of holding the the extremes of the enormous potential benefits and the risks and the very real risk we may repeat the 60s and find ourselves with a backlash in which these these substances and their potential benefits are lost again. Mark, I, I want to. I don't want to get you out of here before he asks you this one. And this is my understanding: it's legal now to treat very difficult, intractable depression, and that is ketamine. Do you have any knowledge yeah. of what's going on with that? Yes, I do. I have a client who works in that industry. You know, my sense is it's getting more normalized. I think the research is good. It's been around for a little while. It's not quite as blow you away as the more recent MDMA psilocybin research, but I am, let's say, you know, optimistic for my clients who try ketamine based on the experiences I've seen thus far. It seems to also have a pretty good safety profile. It's not that not quite the rocket ride that ayahuasca and psilocybin are in particular. It's a lower grade. It's a dissociative. It's more than a psychedelic. But so I would say I'm I, I'm happy to have my clients do that if they want to do it. I've seen some really good results. I've seen some clients sort of just not have that much. So in terms of results, so I would say it's part of the coming buffet of treatments and it's it's established and doesn't need to go through the hoops because it's, you know, it's off-label medication use, which is, as you all know, very common. So it's already out there. I'd like to see it in the range of available treatments for specifically for treatment-resistant depression? I think it is. Yeah, it's in Louisiana, where I'm now. And I had a, a, a friend, his son, who was having you know depression they couldn't remedy. And he said it, you know, they saw positive results. It helped. So Yeah. So what I mean by that is I hope, I hope that nobody makes it illegal, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason or something. But, but yes, it is part of the buffet. And, you know, being an integralist, all four quadrants, you know, if an upper right treatment makes upper right with upper left effects makes the difference, great. It doesn't matter what quadrant the help comes from. If it helps, I'm all open to it. Yeah. And, and we have such a, to use your word, a buffet of uh, available treatments these days. And one of the issues is to, for both clients and therapists, is to have some familiarity with them and discern what's appropriate for this person at this time. So, yeah. Mark, I, I really appreciate your nuance around the psychedelics. And I really hope these substances can be use therapeutically in the future and and that we don't repeat the the mistakes of the 60s both the the messianic mistakes and the repressive mistakes this is a segue into 
you know, we've got a controversial issue is psychedelic therapy, but let's get into one of the really controversial issues, and that's the treatment of trans disorders at this time. Or trans, some people would even be uncomfortable with the word disorders, but trans issues in psychotherapy. Yeah. So with along with psychedelics, this is one of the most currently controversial, contentious, I mean, downright potentially nasty arguments the field is having. And I and I really want to lay out at the beginning, though, that from my perspective, this is not a discussion in any way about whether adult transgender individuals should have the right to transition to their desired sex slash gender and live in that way that they would desire. I think that to me is, for me, it's baked in green. It's just the sensitive thing to do. And until there, I don't know what would be the change, but it seems like kind of an evergreen response at this point. And now in the red states, that statement is maybe not so sturdy. There may be a kind of backlash against trans rights in which the rights of even adults to transition medically, surgically, socially, is being put under threat, or there's at least laws that are being passed that could have mission creep. I read the other day about something called gender exploratory therapy, which might sound a little like conversion therapy, or it's at least ringing some bells for people. But from my clinical perspective, no, there's no problem with an adult with long history of gender dysphoria, deciding to transition, you know, they should have the resources and, you know, medical support to be able to do that. Okay. So then, then the question is, well, what's the controversy? The controversy is really, what do we do with younger people who claim to identify with the other gender slash sex and gender and sex are maybe more linked than we like to think but they can they can be uncoupled but they're somewhat more linked in some important ways so I'm gender slash sexing the my language here but when somebody is young what is the appropriate age to socially transition, meaning like kind of change appearance and demeanor to transition versus the various steps of medical transition, which in, can include puberty blockers, hormone therapy itself, testosterone or estrogen, or then most seriously, surgical procedures. And the model that has been adopted by both APAs, so the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, 
is what is called gender affirmative care. That's the standard they're putting out. Now, I'm not a member of APA, either one. So it's not a binding thing on the field. It's more like the biggest group in the field is taking a particular stance. Now, there are a lot of complexities here, and this is what makes it such a tricky issue. One of them is there's been a very significant increase in the number of uh, youth who've been diagnosed as transgendered. So in 2017, there were 15,000 new diagnoses of transgendered kids. In 2021, there were 42,000. So that's a 300% rise in essentially four years. And to any discerning eye, this is something to really pay attention to. What is happening? Along with that, there seems to be a new category of transgender dysphoria, which is girls of a teenage range deciding that they are transgendered very suddenly without showing that in childhood. And the way I was originally trained, transgenderism is something that starts in childhood. It's strong. It's persistent. It doesn't let go. And then eventually you watchfully wait and work with the person and then you help transition them into an adult way that matches with their gender identity. That model seems to have been thrown out the window in favor of a much more active approach. Now, this is still relatively small numbers who are getting puberty blockers and hormone treatments. It's in the thousands. It's not all 42,000 of those folks being diagnosed, kids being diagnosed, but it's trending. And so are the number of gender treatment clinics are trending upwards pretty exponentially. So there's a concern here that this could be a social contagion uh, as the word that's used. That's not to imply that transgenderism is bad. It's more to imply that a contagion is something that can be socially passed through influence and that kids are more susceptible than adults, although both are susceptible. So what is the right pace of care? And what does the literature say? The literature is not that strong on puberty blockers or hormone therapy as being that helpful in terms of outcomes, mental health outcomes for transgender youth or apparently transgendered youth. I read some more positive results of some surgery, what they call top surgery, which is basically double mastectomy, but it's short term, you know, at this point, and we don't know what the lasting results are. And sitting sort of alongside of this is this question of desistance or what they call desistance, which means that 
the person questions their gender identity, they go through a period of exploration on their own, or maybe in therapy, but could be on their own. And at the end of it, they arrive back in the original gender and decide that's what they are. And one study, which looks very well done, and is, but is controversial, showed that over something like 65% of boys who believe themselves to be transgendered desisted, and they desisted into identifying as gay or bisexual. So there's another issue in here. Are we mislabeling gay or bisexual youth as transgendered because some of their behaviors and attitudes don't strictly conform to a heteronormative model? Well, Mark and Roger, too, I wanted to ask, we talked about the inherent dangers in using psychedelics for therapy. Well, is there, are there inherent dangers with doing the surgery? And has that all been, you know, really good stuff or people have been hurt by it? Or what are we seeing? We, well, the, the question that's focused on a lot now is what happens with puberty blockers? Because that's sort of the lowest, um, lowest in quotes, level medical treatment. And it turns out that some of the effects might never reverse. In other words, you're going to, you might, I can't remember the specifics, so I'm not going to do it, but that it's not this totally reversible thing that if you stop the puberty blockers, then the boy or the girl who decides they're cisgendered, let's say, grows up and they're exactly like their male or female counterparts. So there's they're not harmless without effects. Now, if we're talking simply about any kind of cosmetic surgery where you are re- removing something from the body, quite obviously you're, you know, you are taking a surgical step which can have harm. And this is really where some of the big question marks lie. What are the long-term impacts of these of these surgeries? Are people happy they did them? Are they unhappy? The reality looks like it's a mix, but we don't know the mix. So unlike this outcome research in psychotherapy where we can use these instruments and kind of predict who's going to do pretty good and predict who's not going to do so well, we really don't have that ability in spotting any particular transgendered youth. So this may be a an issue of big data that we need to be able to mine this data. And if I could say something a little more political, it's a problem when you can't ask questions, always a problem. So in other words, to the extent that people who ask questions about this issue and are concerned that we may not be treating youth in the most cautious way, that to the extent that they get labeled as anti-trans or transphobic, this is a significant problem because it will squelch the research that would ultimately get us to the best 
outcome. I mean, I don't think anybody who's transgendered seriously wants a kid who isn't transgendered to do all these medical steps or whatnot. I'm sure they want to identify the kids who really have this gender dysphoria and it's, and it's lasting and it's going to be persistent. That's the group we want to treat and treat well. And for everybody else, there may be more, more options for where to put them. That's what I would say. And as someone who has treated trans persons, worked with, let's say, trans curious and sort of the whole range, let's say, of different experiments around gender, I would not call myself an expertise, but I would say I've had enough clinical experience to see the problem. I had a kid whose parents sent them to me. The kid was autistic, for sure, very bright, but certainly autistic. And I kept trying to go, so when did you decide that you, you know, wanted to be a woman, wanted to transition? Tell me all the reasons why. And I was expecting this flood of ideas and images and stories from when he was four. And there was like nothing. It was a decision that he had made I, for reasons I, I still couldn't get out of him. And I remember the last meeting I had, I had with the family and I told him, I said, I'm just not hearing enough about how badly you want this. I think he wanted medical treatment, possibly puberty blockers. And it was just hard clinically to get on board. And it's not because I I didn't want him to be transgendered. It was because I, I wanted him to, you know, share with me this deep desire. And it just wasn't happening. And hard to say, but, you know, it might have something to do with a type of autistic rigidity not fitting in that somehow equaled to him transgendered, or maybe later he blossomed into a person who had all the reasons, let's say, to want to transition. But so I've had my exposure to folks where it's like, these questions are exactly the questions. I would not treat a transgendered person now because it's so controversial and the landscape is shifting. I would say to that person, go, let me, let me see if I can find you an expert who does this for a living because you need somebody who's going to know all this literature back and forth, have seen these transitions. I'm not your guy. You need a higher level of care. Mark, there's so much in what you've said, and I just want to pull some things out of it to name them so we they're clear for us all. And first, I'll just deal with my own responses. What I, I feel as I listen is, oh, my, this is so complex. And, we no, and second, oh, we really don't not understand or know much about this. And third, oh, yes, how ter- how tragic it is that one can get denigrated or cancelled for asking questions about. That's always a big danger sign for me. 
And another thing you just was a throwaway line you just ended with was you 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 you'll refer people at this stage of your career because it's such a complex issue and and that's one of the hallmarks of as far as I can see of really good therapists they refer a lot they're quite willing to let let clients or patients go and and encourage them to see someone else if they feel they'll do better with them. And that that feels like a really a real hallmark of good therapists. Yeah. Okay, we've dealt with looked at, I think we're left in a place of ambiguity and and a healthy not knowing about a lot of the lot of the trans issues. And yes. if only there were more of the don't know mind in the culture at large, there'd be a lot less division, a lot less animosity and a lot less openness to research. Let's go to another another issue, which is really a big one in the culture at the moment. That's the epidemic of loneliness. That was part two of a three-part conversation with Dr. Mark Foreman, an extraordinary integral psychotherapist and human being. I think you're gonna like this third part. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.